So I wonder what's going through your mind as you consider those two verses. He that smiteth cure Jephthah and taketh it to him, will I give Aksa my daughter to wife? Some of you may be thinking, what a careless, reckless statement. He is reducing his girl to nothing more than a prize for an accomplishment. Doesn't he care any more than that about who she marries? He has no idea who may win this battle. It could be any scalawag from the ghetto. And he's promising his daughter to that person. And when you consider this statement that Caleb made, you may find affirmation for your thoughts when you think about Caleb's history. You remember who Caleb was. Some 40, 45 years prior to this time, he was one of those 12 spies that spied out the land of Canaan. And already then, already at that point, he was what some people saw as the reckless person, the careless person. Most of the spies had the common sense to see that invading Canaan was a foolhardy move, but not Caleb. He was ready to rumble. Let's go. No problem. We can do it. What are we waiting for? So was Caleb a man inclined to thinking without, of acting without thinking or of acting irresponsibly? And is that what we see here in Joshua 15, an irresponsible statement? Well, on the contrary, I wish to present to you this morning, present Caleb as a man of faith and forethought and foresight, someone who could see beyond the present and see beyond the obstacles to something beyond that. See beyond the things that block many people's vision and anticipate a divine result. Now, it's easy for us to see Caleb as a man of faith and vision when we remember the story of spying out the land of Canaan. That's easy because we know God's response. We know how God felt about what the other spies said. We know how God felt about what Canaan said. The Bible makes that clear. And in this passage, the two verses that Glenn read here, in Joshua 15, verses 16 and 17, it may not be as obvious that Caleb was a man of faith, but I think as you look carefully at these verses, it's there, and it's noticeable. So the title of the sermon this morning is, First the Battle, Then the Bride. First the Battle, Then the Bride. And I want to focus on the subject of, of dating and preparing for dating and marriage, what goes beyond that. That was the intention as I started preparing for this message. First the battle, then the bride. Maybe I should have a few clarifications to begin with. Some of you are probably thinking, okay, so now that Nate has children that are at this point in life, he finally gets around to preaching about dating. Well, I guess that would be a logical conclusion to make, and I don't blame you if you make that conclusion. But this sermon was in the cooker before any of my children started dating the youth here at church. And it was an interesting subject to look at, albeit uh, perhaps one that makes me a little bit more nervous than, than some, 
to address, can be a, a personal subject. But here again in this area, I find that you as a congregation are very helpful. Uh, just a few weeks ago, for pastor appreciation, I received this stress relief ball that I can use when I'm stressed out. So um, found some use for that this week. And uh, perhaps I should give you a warning. There was a note with a ball that said, uh, perhaps the best way to relieve stress with this ball is by throwing it at the people that stress you out. So uh, I'll try not to do that this morning, but I'll keep it here in case I need it. Thirdly, I'm aware that some of you may be thinking, here we go again, this sermon does not apply to me. However, if I would have announced that we're going to have a special evening service sometime to speak to the youth about dating, I have a sneaking suspicion that there are quite a few of you that would think, hmm, I wish I could sit in and listen to what he says to them. So if that's the case, you get your wish this morning. And if you're receptive, I think you will all find something uh, useful to apply to your lives here. It's been close to five years, I think, since we had a message here on dating at Weavertown. Uh, Dave Stoltzus uh, had a message. And just to give you an idea how long ago that was, it was B.C., before COVID. A lot can change in five years. The 13 to 15-year-olds, when that sermon was preached, who may have had an aversion to doing anything at all with the opposite gender, are now 18 to 20-year-olds and may have discovered that their inner chemistry made some changes in the last five years. And we've all made some changes. That's how things go. Sometimes we hear young men make the statement, I'm never going to get married. I know of uh, one of my friends, he was a school teacher, who heard that statement quite frequently from some of his students. Well, I'm not going to get married. So this man would make an offer to those men. He said, you say you're not going to get married. Fine. I'm going to offer you a $100 bill today. I'll give it to you. And the only condition is that if you change your mind and the day you get married, you give me $1,000. But you say you're not going to get married, so here's $100. You can take it. No one ever took him up on his offer. So they made some bold statements, but deep down inside, perhaps they knew that time would bring change to their, pers to their perspective. So perhaps it's time to look at this uh, subject here again this morning. So let's get back to Caleb and the offer he made in these two verses here in Joshua. And what is your opinion about these verses? I asked my family this week, I read those two verses, and I said, uh, what's your first impression? What's your first opinion? And granted, this is first impression, not really thought out. One of my daughters said, hmm, sounds like he views his daughter merely as a possession, a thing to give away. One of my sons, I won't say which one, <laughs> said, well, that sounds pretty straightforward. Whoever takes the city gets a daughter. He took the city and he got his daughter. Sounds pretty simple. But as we looked at it a little bit more, we thought there's probably more involved than just those statements. 
So I indicated that Caleb, I believe, here is a man of faith. And what is it to me that indicates that he was not just leaving the door wide open for any scoundrel to marry his daughter, but was actually raising the bar to a high standard for who this man would be? And for me, I'm looking at this from the perspective of a father. And I do not think that this was just an off-the-wall afterthought from Caleb. Oh, yeah, whoever takes this city, he can have my daughter, too. Now, I don't think that was the case. Nor do I think it was merely given as an incentive. I need to make taking this city appear attractive so that someone will actually step up and do it. And I guess I can't think of a better way of doing that than offering my daughter to whoever takes it. I don't think that was his motive. I think the statement by Caleb was a test. If you want to marry my daughter, you need to prove yourself. And this is how you can do it. I think it was a test that he set for them. So in other words, as we look at this account, I do not see it as a matter of offering his daughter as a reward for the one who captures a city. I look at it as a matter of offering the city as a test for the person who wished to marry his daughter. Offering the city as a test. So first the battle, then the bride. What is the battle? It's a matter of passing the test to show that we are ready to accept a bride. What are some things to consider if we are ready for marriage? I, I thought about giving this sermon the title, Who May Marry My Daughter? But I thought that sounded pretty dangerous. Some of you might interpret that a little more directly than I intended. But we're looking at passing the test and five tests that are here in this passage, five tests that I see. First to battle, passing the test. Test number one is the test of taking leadership. Now, as you think about this setting, it's pretty obvious that one man alone was not going to conquer a city. Whoever this man was going to be was not going to do it alone. This was a city. He needed people to help him. And keep in mind the characteristics of this area. Keep in mind what scared those 10 spies to begin with 40-some years before. This was the land of the Anakim. This was the land of giants. Their cities were great and fenced, the Bible tells us. And to defeat or conquer those cities did not take a man. It took an army. So Caleb was looking here for a man who could effectively lead an army, not somebody who was going to do this on his own. Who will marry my daughter, he asked. It will be someone who is able to take leadership, someone who can lead out. And we see further evidence of this later on in Othniel's life. Othniel is the young man who took the city. I assume he was young. Bible doesn't say. Do you recognize that name, Othniel? Do you know anything else about this man? We read about him in the book of Judges as well. Othniel became the very first judge of Israel. In Judges chapter 3, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, upon Othniel, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed against him. 
and the land had rest 40 years. So Othniel was a man who could take leadership. Was he a famous leader? Not necessarily. He is likely not the first judge to come to your mind when you think about judges. He is not as well known as Gideon or Samson or Samuel. But he was willing to step up when there was a need. He was willing to take leadership when the need arose. And this was evidenced when he was a young man before he was married. Yes, he became a judge of Israel, but that was later on. But in these verses, even as a young man, when there was a need, even though he was not the most famous leader around, he was willing to step up and do his part. So young men, do you run from responsibility? Or are you willing to take leadership? You may not be the most qualified, the most popular person around, but you still need to take leadership. And I would like to submit to you this morning that if you have not proven yourself capable of assuming leadership when the, name when the, when the need arises, you're likely not ready to take leadership for a wife, a family, and a home. And again, this does not mean that you need to be the most natural-born leader in the youth group or the most popular. But when you have the opportunity to share your testimony, lead out in sharing a testimony, or a devotional in church or the youth group, wherever. Lead out in showing yourself responsible in your duties assigned to you. Make it practical. When the youth group goes away for the weekend, make sure everyone has a ride, especially the younger people, especially the girls. Don't just go off on your own. Make sure the young people and the youth feel welcome. Have a ride to get home and back before they have their license. And look out for your sisters. God gave you a wonderful opportunity to develop leadership by looking out for your sisters, some of you. I see Daniel nodding his head, yes, here, look out for his sisters. <laughs> but this is an opportunity to practice leadership. Show courtesy. Marriage is assuming responsibility. So, who may marry my daughter? Caleb asks. It will be a man who knows how to take leadership. That was the first test. Test number two is the test of obedience to God, faith in his promises, and dependence on his spirit. It's kind of a threefold thing there combined in one. The second test, the test of obedience to God, faith in his promises, and dependence on his spirit. So God had promised the Hebrews to drive out the Canaanites before them. God had promised that he would drive them out. However, the Israelites themselves had a part that they needed to carry through on this. What was their end of the deal? They needed to proceed in faith and obey. They needed to be strong and of good courage. And they were told to not stop until they had possessed the entire land. So they had a part that they needed to carry up as well. And this was the kind of husband that Caleb wanted for his daughter. This is the kind of husband that any godly father should want for his daughter, and the kind of man that any godly woman should want for her husband. Someone who is willing to obey God and depend on his spirit. 
You see, Caleb was looking for a young man who was not distracted by the cares of this world when there were battles to be fought and cities to be claimed for God. So again, I ask young men, are you ready to obey the command of the Lord and step out in faith and claim territory for him? Or are you distracted by the temptation to settle down and make yourself comfortable when there are still battles to be fought and victories to be claimed? And Othniel passed this test with flying colors. Not only did he have faith in God, but he relied upon God's spirit. And the verse I read earlier in Judges 3 says, The spirit of the Lord came upon him. This is when he judged Israel. And he went and the Lord delivered Mesopotamia into his hands. And just a note to the fathers here as well. Caleb was not asking for something from Othniel, from his potential son-in-law, that he himself did not put to practice. Caleb himself depended on the spirit of the Lord. And we can read that in Numbers 14, when it talks about those spies who went into the land and came back with fear and how they rejected God's promise, it says, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit within him. He did not have the spirit of fear that the ten had. He had the spirit of God within him. He had another spirit within him. And God said, because he followed me fully, him will I bring into the land. So Caleb had God's spirit. He was looking for a potential son-in-law who also depended on God's spirit and obeyed him in faith. So whom we marry, my daughter, Caleb asked. The man who obeys God has faith and lives by the power of his spirit. Test number three, the test of shared values. Shared values. I believe that Caleb lived his life with one purpose in mind. And I think there was something that his entire life was always not far from the front of his mind. And that was claiming and conquering territory for God. That was his life purpose. Way back to that time when he was a spy, he wanted to conquer that territory. This is what he lived for. This is what he was known for. This is what he was what was important to him. And if Caleb would not have been able to conquer this land before he died, I believe he would, would have considered his life a failure. He would have died a disappointed man. That's how important it was for him to claim turf for God. I believe Caleb expected his children to share his values. He expected the land of Canaan to be important to them as well. He expected them to preserve and to protect and guard this inherited land after he was gone. Caleb realized that he was responsible for the next generation and succeeding generations. I have a mandate from God to conquer and occupy this land, but the next generation will maintain this land, and I'm responsible to prepare them to do it. So in that sense, it was important to Caleb that his potential son-in-law, also shared his vision. He was looking for a man that shared 
the vision and the values that he did. In setting up this test of Kirjath Sefer, Caleb was really saying this. The man who marries my daughter must share my vision for conquering territory for God. He must be invested in it so that he is committed to preserving it. You see, Caleb had seen enough of spiritual wimps. In fact, he wandered in the desert 40 years because of spiritual wimps. He didn't want to have anything more to do with that in his family. He was ready for men who shared the vision. I want to see a man who can stand up in faith and fight the enemy. So now when we talk about dating and when we talk about marriage, we talk about compatibility. We talk about people getting along. And we especially think about this between the potential husband and wife, the young man and the young woman. Do they have similar interests? Do they share values and goals and ambitions? That's important. But I think there's something else we need to consider as well, something else that a young man needs to consider. And that is the things that are important to the young lady's father. What are his goals for his daughter. After all, he raised this daughter for 20 years or more, hopefully, and certainly he has some goals for her. He's not ready to simply throw them out the window. Some of those goals may be negotiable, some may not. Othniel, in this case, had no doubt of what was important to Caleb. I think it's a duty of a young man to find out what is important to his potential father-in-law, what his goals for his daughter are, and if that young man can help to meet those goals. Now, I asked Kendall if I have his permission to talk about him a little bit this morning. He gave me permission, but I'll try not to do it too much. Soon after Kendall and Janessa started dating, I had a good long conversation with Janessa's father. And one of the questions I asked her dad was, what are your goals for your daughter? I thought that was something important to know. If one of his goals for his daughter was that she lives in a million dollar house on a lakefront property, I thought it was important that we know that to see if that's something compatible with our goals. And the good thing about this conversation was that Kendall and her father had already met and had their own talks and discussed such things, and that's important. It's imperative. But I don't think it hurts for dads to discuss it as well. They may have some additional insights. And young ladies, this test of of discerning values is for you to consider as well. You need to determine what's really important in the life of this young man that has an interest in you. If he plans to spend his life in missions in the tropics or in the Arctic or in a Muslim country, can you share that vision? Can you share that goal? That's important to know. If he expects to spend every weekend throughout the fall months in the woods pursuing whitetails in various states. Is that compatible with your values? It's important for you to know that. 
if he is going to be glued to the screen every Sunday afternoon during football season? Are you okay with that? Discern those things. Courtship is a time of figuring out what's important in the other person's life and if you share those values. Who may marry my daughter, Caleb asks. It will be a man who values what I value and what I expect my daughter to value. Well, there's another test, test number four, the test of making the world a better place. I'd like you to notice something about this city, Kirjath Sefer, in these verses. If we back up a verse or two, in verse 15, talks about Caleb here. He went up thence to the inhabits, inhabitants of Deber, and the name of Deber before was Kirjath Sefer. So actually, Kirjath Sefer was the Canaanite name for this city, but after Othniel captured the city, conquered the city, took over it, it received a new identity, a new name. It became known as Deber. And we see that as we read the context here about another city. There was another city called Kirjath Arba, not Kirjath Sefer, but Kirjath Arba, and that became known as Hebron. So what we see here taking place is that Othniel captured this city, and that city became permanently changed to the point that it was even known by a new name. Now, what does Kirjath Sefer mean? This name, the name of this city, means the city of books. And it's assumed that this was a city of knowledge. Perhaps it had a large library. Perhaps it's where political records were kept. We don't know exactly what all those books involved, but it was known as a city of books and obviously referred to man's knowledge or what you might refer to as worldly wisdom. But the name changed to Deber, which means oracle or oracle of God, having to do with a revelation from God. So you see how this city changed from having a reputation of relying on man's wisdom. It received a new name and now became known as a city of revelation from God. That is a big change. Not only did it become a different place, it became a better place, a better place entirely. So young men, what have you done to make this world a better place? Has the world changed because you're in it? God has given you 15, 18, 20, 25 years, depending on your age, to make a difference in the world. Is the world better because you're here? What difference have you made? And if you haven't done anything to make this world a better place, what makes you think that's going to change if you get a wife? What makes you think that you can make life better for your wife, for your potential wife? So think about this. Is Weavertown Church better because you're in it? Is your school better because you are in it? Is your youth group better because you're in it? Your family, your Sunday school class, your community, would these places miss you 
if you wouldn't be there. And how do you make the world a better place? By making it wealthier? By building nice barns for people? Building nice buildings? By providing entertainment? Making it more profitable? I'll tell you how how you can make this world a better place. And that is by giving everything you gain and everything you earn back to God. We see something interesting about this city, Kirjas Sefer, which became known as Debir. Just a couple of chapters later, in Joshua 21, Joshua was designating cities for the Levites. Now, you may recall when the children of Israel came into Canaan, every tribe received their portion except for the Levites. They were not given a large portion like the other tribes were. Instead, they were just given specific places where they could live and a little bit of uh, property around it to keep their cattle, but that was it. And as Joshua was parceling out these cities to the Levites, including cities of refuge, one of the cities that he gave them was Deber. Now, it would seem to me that that city should belong to Othniel. After all, he captured it, right? But he didn't hang on to it. He held it with loose hands. And he ended up giving that back to God, for God's chosen people, the Levites. So how do you make a difference in the world? Yes, go out and conquer. But the things that you conquer, give back to God and allow God to use them. That's really what makes this world a better place. Who may marry my daughter? Caleb asked. It will be a man who makes this world a better place to live and then gives it all back to God for him to do with as he chooses. Now, there's one more test I would like to address. Probably the most obvious of them all. Maybe the one you were waiting for ever since we started. And that's simply the test of winning battles. After all, that's what Caleb asked for. Whoever goes out and fights against this city and wins the battle. Whoever smites it and takes it. He is the one who will get my daughter. It's not enough to wish for the city. It's not enough to look at it and long for it and gaze for it. It's not even enough to fight for it. You have to win. You have to fight the battle, and you need to win the battle. This was the test that Caleb gave. Fathers, there are battles that any young man that is pursuing your daughter needs to win. Young men, there are battles you need to win. Because who you are now is who you will be later on. Now, granted, I realize that God can make a change in our lives. But generally, what you are now is what you will be. Othniel fought battles before he was married. He fought battles after he was married. You see that tendency carrying through. He needed to learn to win the battles when he was young. What are some of the battles that we need to win? And we could make a long list here. I will just mention several. 
Obviously, there is the battle of moral purity. Every man knows this is a battle. Every young man knows this is a battle. Every older man knows that this is a battle. And if this is a battle that is not won before you're married, it's a battle that will not be won after you're married. Yeah, God's grace is still real and deliver you. I should say it will not be won just because you get married. That will not win the battle for you. Until you win this battle, you're not ready to take the daughter, to take the bride. And remember, you don't win battles alone. Othniel did not win this battle alone. He needed help. If you need help, don't be afraid to ask for it. There's a second battle, the battle of using time wisely. If you think life is busy now, if you think it's full, wait till you have a wife and a couple preschoolers and an infant more responsibility at work, at church, and home. And if you don't have time to maintain a meaningful devotional life now, don't expect it's going to get easier. That's a battle that you need to fight, learn to manage your time. There's the battle of using finances wisely. If you're living with consumer debt, credit card debt, spending money as fast as you get it or faster, you're not winning the battle. You're not using your finances for building God's kingdom. There's many more battles we could look at. Consider it. What is your battle that you need to win? Who may marry my daughter? Caleb asked. It will be the man who knows to stand up and fight for what is right and the man who has won the battle. Now, I'd like to move on from those five tests the five tests that Caleb was laying out here, and perhaps get a little more personal. I'd like to speak now a little bit specifically to the young men, a message for the young men here. And my encouragement to you is, there's a battle. Rise up to the challenge. Don't run from the test. And I know that some of you young men thrive on challenges. If it's a physical challenge, you're all into it. You can run 50 miles. You can take on the steepest mountain. And a challenge that would literally kill some people doesn't stop you. You say, bring it on. You're like Caleb when he spied out the land. Let's go. We got this. That's ours. Let's claim it. And you're ready for the challenge. Can you face the spiritual tests and battles of life with the same determination? Young men, can you look at the fathers in this church? Can you look at the fathers of the ladies in this church in the eye and say, bring it on, lay out the conditions, make it tough, make it challenging. I'm up to the challenge. Give me the highest mountain. Give me the land of the giants. I'm ready for the battle. I'm ready to win. Don't run from a challenge. May your response be that of Caleb's. If the Lord will be with me, I shall be able to drive them out. After all, you don't want a cheap wife, an easy win, a Division C trophy. 
You want a double A trophy. Take the challenge and win it for the Lord. I'm not preaching this message to scare you. I'm preaching it to challenge you and to encourage you. I'm a married man. That took me a while, but I got there. And I highly recommend it. Rise up to the challenge. A message for the fathers. A twofold message. First of all, don't give your daughters away cheaply. Don't be afraid to set a test like Caleb did. Hold them to a high standard. But along with that, don't be too harsh. Okay, this is for the fathers now. This isn't for the young men. I think we've all heard of fathers that run young men through the mill in various ways. And sometimes our heart goes out to those young men. We, we remember what it was like to be in those shoes when our fingers were shaking when we dialed that number in the telephone or whatever it was that we did. And remember that. As I had a conversation with a young man several months ago, we had a, a very good conversation. And I told him, I said, the purpose for the questions that I'm asking you is not necessarily to receive a certain answer. I, I'm not looking for a particular answer so much as I want you to know what's important to me. These are things that I think are important. And your, answers, your answer may be different than my answer was, but these are issues that are important. So we need to hold them to a high standard. We need to expect them to be victors in the battle of life. But we need to give them winnable battles. Caleb gave a battle that was winnable, and Othniel won it. And just another message for the fathers, don't lose heart. I know there are some of you here that have had some disappointments, and that was very much in my mind as I was preparing this. My heart goes out to you, and my goal is not to make your situation more difficult. I'm confident you did what you could, but I think our eyes need to be on the future. We want to see God-honoring marriages in our church and in our families. We don't want there to be shipwrecks because of lack of teaching. So let's not lose heart. Let's keep our eyes to the future and look ahead and let us join together to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And now briefly, just a, a message for all of us as the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed it, but these two verses are very rich in meaning for all of us, and we could spend a lot of time on this. I'll try to make it quick. We have a father in heaven who told his son, in essence, I have a bride for you. But first, you must go into the world, face the evil, and fight the battle, and win. Christ had a battle to face. Christ came to this earth, and he fought that battle. He won that battle. He is victorious, 
And remember I said one of the tests was to make the world a better place? This world is a different place because of the battle that Christ fought. It's a better place. And he will come back and claim his bride. It is going to happen. There's no question about it. There's a lot of significance here as we look at what Christ did in claiming his bride. And we could go on and on in this. If we read in the following verses, we see how that Caleb's daughter spoke to her husband or husband-to-be, whichever it was at that point, and through him went to her own father and asked for him a blessing. So she went to her father in the name of his son-in-law, her husband, with a prayer for blessing of living water. It's beautiful. He gave her all that she needed. So this is actually a message for the church. And young men, God is giving you an outstanding opportunity to portray his son who fought the battle to claim his bride. Rise up, O men of God, and fight and win. Just a couple closing comments I'd like to make here. Uh, first of all, <laughs> when I started pre preparing for this sermon, I intended to preach a sermon on the subject of dating, kind of in response to a request from one of you. And it didn't, this sermon did not end up anywhere near where I expected it to when I started. As my mind kept going back to this passage and the test that was given here, so there's so much more that could be presented, the practicalities, the why, the when, the who, the how. So we'll just have to leave it at that for this morning. I would like to close this message by giving a tribute to my wife's parents, to Dan and Lena. They gave to me the greatest gift they possibly could have given they gave me their trust and their acceptance, even though I did not deserve it. They gave me their daughter. I did not realize at that time what that meant. They gave me their input. I still remember a conversation I had with Dad before we got married. I could take you to the exact spot. I could tell you some of the exact things that he said. He probably doesn't remember any of it, but I do. So I'm thankful for their input. <clears throat> exactly one year ago, today, as some of the family was gathered together, mom quietly slipped away. And today she is part of the redeemed, the bride of Christ. Yesterday, some of the family visited the gravesite out here. One of them put the note, Mom, we have our tickets, and we'll be joining you soon. We're part of the bride, part of the bride of Christ. Let's continue to fight the fight of faith, not give up, remain steadfast, until we're all gathered in the presence of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you, if you're able, to kneel with us for prayer.